0: Welcome to Spooky South Coast Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it doesn't
1: Presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa.
2: Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moni. Spooky South Coast, where we talk about the paranormal every Saturday night, broadcasting here on WBSM and on Fate Radio as well. If you go to FateMag.com/slash fate radio. You can see inside the spooky studio during the show, which, I don't know, I guess some people find interesting. So, we're tired of looking at each other after doing this for over four years. So, you know, we'll just keep putting it up there, and if people keep watching it, then, hey, that's that's their choice. I mean, I guess Saturday night is kind of like a, a, a dead night for television. So, it's a great night for Fate Radio, and uh, we will be here for many Saturday nights to come. As we head into the Halloween season coming up, before we know it, uh, which for us starts you know pretty much right after Christmas, like that's when our Halloween starts. <laughs> but uh, tonight is a, a special night because we are just about on the anniversary of the uh, Lizzie Borden murder. The well, the Lizzie Borden being accused of the murder of uh, Andrew and Abby Borden. We're going to talk about that tonight with our guest Faye Musselman, who is one of the world's foremost experts on all things Borden. Uh, She's a collector of Borden memorabilia. She reads everything. She digs into the story deeper than anybody I know. Uh, She runs a great blog uh, called Tattered Fabric where she posts all this information. She's going to join us tonight to talk about the real Lizzie Borden, the Lizzie Borden that has kind of fallen by the wayside in the last, I don't know, a decade or so as there's more of a, a focus on the paranormal Lizzie, You know, we kind of lose sight of who Lizzie was as a person. And a lot of the information that's been coming out of these paranormal investigations of the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in Fall River have essentially kind of diluted the story of Lizzie Borden. And and they've taken over as almost becoming fact when there may or may not be any proof about that. So we're going to talk with Faye and find out exactly what is true, what isn't true. Uh, What do we know about Lizzie? Uh, What other things that might not be out there in the in the realm of what the paranormal people discuss might factor into some of the hauntings that are going on. Cause we, when we talked to Faye in 2007, when we interviewed her in the basement, Matt Moniz and I of the Lizzie Boyd bed and breakfast. She was kind of new to the whole idea of the paranormal stuff. She'd heard about it, but she hadn't experienced anything. And, you know, she didn't really make it a big part of her research, but now she can't help it because it's what people talk about when they talk about the Borden case.
3: Yeah. Uh, she was open to it, which was helpful, uh, but remaining skeptical until she experienced some of her own stuff.
2: And, I mean, you got to understand, though, when somebody has devoted so much of their life to studying something, as you know, you've, yeah. you've done it with the paranormal, but when somebody has dedicated so much of their life to studying one subject, as Faye has with Lizzie Borden, and then all of a sudden people are coming at you out of left field with all this paranormal stuff, it's probably a lot to take when, you know, when you're somebody like her who has investigated every detail of the case, and now they're bringing all this information that they're getting out of ghost boxes and <laughs> tape recorders. So it's, uh, it's a lot to take, and I believe we have Faye on the line joining us now, so let's welcome her in. Good evening, Faye. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hi,
0: it is Faye. How are you? We
2: finally got you back. Yeah. We uh we're very excited because we love talking with you. We think you're one of the coolest guests that we've had on and you're a riot and you...
0: <laughs> Well, thank you very much. You guys are pretty cool yourselves.
2: Well, thank you and and if anybody knows they're bored and stuff, it's you.
0: <laughs> well, you know, this is pretty cool. Um my my uh phone got zapped in the, the mo- latest monsoon electrical thunderstorm. So I'm actually in my office, and I've got the live stream going on the screen, which is a little bit of a delay. So it's kind of weird. I haven't done this before where I'm actually looking at the monitor. Hi, guys. I don't have a video cam, so you can't see me. Which is probably a good thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you know it's the new technology. It's something that we've been yep. trying to get Leanne to put in at the be- Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. Oh, so yeah. People can kind of see and watch for ghosts themselves. Yeah. Uh,
3: I got a call from her, and uh, I'm going to help actually set that up hopefully before uh, the end of September.
2: Yeah. yeah. The only catch with that is, is they have to get a better Internet connection.
3: Yeah. And
0: waivers that's of privacy yeah. for the
3: that's, guests. No, this is going to be in the public areas of the house maybe. Oh, okay.
2: And that I mean that is uh something that they do have to keep in mind though is you know, you are a bed and breakfast first and foremost, but sooner or later it's gonna get to the point where it's more about the paranormal other than may may even already Sooner be.
0: or later? Oh oh <laughs> they're there. I mean that whole um, house is has morphed into an attraction site as a as a haunted edifice in Fall River. You know, when it first opened as a B and B. It didn't get a lot of that. I mean what you heard about was uh in some documentaries where Martha McGinn mm-hmm. who um, ran it uh talked about her dog wouldn't go up the front stairs and stuff like that and she would hear noises and furniture moving and her grandfather said, What are you moving furniture for? And she says, I wasn't But you didn't have this this um, watershed of um shows, these documentaries, these YouTube videos. Mm. I mean in the last last ten years it's just exploded and it is more the the structure at 92 Second Street is considered more a quote unquote haunted house than it is a site of a historically significant classic unsolved
2: crime. You know? And it's one of those things too where it's a lot of these true crime places, you know, these, these sites of murders, these, you know, maybe the the shack where the Unabomber, you know, composes bombs. or You know, a lot of these places are now being tied into these stories paranormally. It's almost like it's just another avenue for people who are true crime buffs yeah. on top of being paranormal enthusiasts.
0: Yeah, well, it makes me wonder if some enterprising entrepreneur, developer had built a resort on the beaches of Normandy in the early 50s, and then 60, 70 years later, people say that structure is haunted, you know, <laughs> you, because of all the guests that go there, the expectations, you lose sight of the historical aspect through the paranormal. And and that's it's an interesting thing. I think we talked about this before. Why? Why is this explosion of the paranormal? And a lot of it has escalated since uh, uh, 9-11. It... Uh, it's, I think it has something to say about our society and what are we looking for? And you know, it's just a lot of it is entertainment. A lot of it is uh, packaged for television, the various shows because they can get sponsorships because they have viewers. It sells because there's a massive audience out there that's in touch with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Believers or borderline non-believers, and. <clears throat> With with the number of people out there that have had experiences, you got to you got to say something's there, and I do firmly believe something's in that house. I don't go so far as to say it's haunted, but there's something there. Um, but I find it, it just amazingly curious. Why why now? Why are people so in tune to this more than ever before in the history of this country?
2: The paranormal. Well, I mean do you want our speculation on that or Yeah yeah why do you think Oh uh, well many of the the factors that we've heard is, well first of all it does go in cycles the interest level in okay. this it does kind of wax and wane uh and usually when there's some sort of traumatic event you'll see an increase of it uh for example you know now we're in a post 9/11 world where people have kind of moved more toward the spiritual uh and we're still we seem to still be in that mode uh coming out of that disaster and
3: we did the same thing, and after the Vietnam era, same thing happened after World War II in Korea. People were looking for answers as to why there was so much um, pain and suffering, and it was also. It's also uh, they also tied it to economic depression. When things got uh, economically depressed, people would look for other things That's that true, weren't. Yeah. weren't as Something expensive. beyond their mundane right. existence, right?
2: And but one thing I will say is, I think that this paranormal media boom that we're experiencing with all these ghost shows on TV and books and radio shows and all this stuff about the paranormal that's out there now, I don't know how much of that is actually tied into the fact that it is one of these booms that we're experiencing and interest level in it, or if it's just a matter of uh, they found something else that was kind of alternative programming. Because look at Art Bell. He was doing this before 9-11, and he was having a lot of success before that. The
1: latest news, weather, and sport.
2: and so what it is, is it's more of, uh, I think, that it's been given a spotlight, and it's kind of just snowballed from there. Mm.
0: Well, if if there's uh, a factual basis to the theory that when something horrendous uh, happens at a location, the residue, the spiritual residue is there, and I'm thinking of Gettysburg, okay? You were in my head, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yet... I didn't I didn't hear a lot about Gettysburg, just you know, it's not featured on YouTube that much or or you know, it's not one of the world's creepiest places. But the Borden House uh is. The Borden House in Fall River has transcended from a historical structure of significance in, in the annals of crime to this haunted building, this haunted house. And People go there, a lot of guests go there, strictly hoping for an experience. Back in 96, 97, when I started going, it was just to, it was the excitement of being in the same, occupying the same space in a different time and seeing how the interior was and and figuring out how people moved about in there. Mm -hmm. It was more about the history of the crime and the facts of it and Lizzie's life at that location, more so than the supernatural. But, you know, uh, bottom line, my feeling is it sells tickets, it gets people in there, it keeps that place open, and as long as that place is open, people can go and have whatever experience they're seeking, uh, and that's a good thing. So, you know, whatever drives the business, I'm all for it.
2: Well, I mean, but that is part of it, too. I mean, if, if you've ever seen the episode of Ghost Hunters, where they investigated the Lizzie Board in Bed and Breakfast, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Gonzalez made the famous statement of, you know, any place with a gift shop can't be haunted, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that uh, even he almost regrets saying that now because so many places that they now advertise as being haunted are these museums, are these places where they want to get people to come and visit and buy a gift on their way out. So it's it, it, like we like to say here, you know, it's like come for the ghost, stay for the history. If you go there to have a paranormal experience and you learn something as a result of it, well, then that just made it all the better. It, kind of doubles yeah. the price of admission for you. Yeah. Well,
0: <clears throat> we're going to talk about Lizzie tonight, and in in the context of speaking about that house, that's really important to understand that house and its location for the Borden family. The Borden family, you know, they, they were the founding families, the premier founding family of that whole town. And her direct blood relations... For the most part, lived up on the hill, which is where she wanted to live. So, <clears throat> when you think of her living in that house, I think um, she was very uh, unhappy there. The house almost had a claustrophobic effect. Uh, it was very territorial. She and Emma had their own space upstairs. It was almost like a suite. You know, their their adjoining bedrooms, and then the guest room was actually like a receiving parlor for them and their guests, um, and I think they resented whenever Abby had to go up there. It was like an intruder into their space. The sitting room was the father and Abby's space. The dining room was common area, as was the kitchen. So the house was very much territorial and divided, and I think the last couple years, particularly the last two weeks before the crime and certainly the afternoon before the crime, um, there was a, a, a stew bubbling to boil over, and it did. I think Lizzie was very much aware of her heritage. She she knew of her bloodline, her genealogy. Uh, she knew, you know, who her relatives were and the banking industry, the mills that they were all involved with. And she knew her father could afford better. So we, we, I'm not giving any new information here. People know this. But in the context of where she lived in that house... Keep in mind that there was a uh, festering, brooding hatred of having to live there,
2: but one of the things uh, w- when you 're discussing this and this is a lot of the the reasoning that people put behind why she might have murdered her father, and it almost becomes as if you know she wanted to murder i mean and i don 't mean to speak as if she did it, but for people who think that she did it, they feel that she wanted to murder Andrew, and almost murdering Abby was kind of a an after effect of that because she was getting rid of one, she had to get rid of the other two to carry out her plan. And I think that there was so much of that hatred building for Abby over time too because she was caught in this dual relationship here with Emma almost being the mother figure to her growing up and this other woman who's trying to be the authoritative mother. So, you know, that had to have been weighing on her quite a bit as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to get into that about her and her father and sister's relationship there.
2: Well, that of course is you know one of the most controversial topics yeah. regarding this whole case. See, I
0: I, I see there's three Lizzies. Okay, there's the Lizzie before 1890 when she went on the Grand Tour. Okay, the haughty, domineering, spoiled Lizzie. She goes on this grand tour. The first time she's ever more than 50 miles outside of Fall River. And she's suddenly on this nice vessel. And she's going to uh, England and Scotland and Italy. And she's seeing castles. And and she's having hot baths and and good food. And it's just wonderful. And she realized what her father's money could buy. Mm. She wanted more. And the second Lizzie was born of that trip. She came back with a steeled reserve to have more. The third Lizzie is post her acquittal living in Maplecroft. You know, Lizzie lived uh, uh, half of her life below the hill and the other half up in Maplecroft. And that second half of her life, in what I call the third Lizzie, uh, she was very much a different kind of woman the loyal uh, she really valued loyalty she never forgot a kindness nor did she forgive a betrayal and <clears throat> everyone who was loyal to her up through her death uh she never she never forgot them and it's going to come out in the Fall River Historical Society's book Parallel Lives of how well they thought of her they loved her she endeared herself to them um, but they knew that third Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Most of those close friends of hers mentioned in the will, except for some of the old school chums, they knew the third. Helen, Helen Layton didn't meet Lizzie until uh, the early 1900s. She didn't know the first or second Lizzie. <laughs> the people that comment about how great and nice and kind and generous and sweet, and she never could have done it, Knew the third Lizzie. The people that knew the first and second Lizzie were all those that turned their back on her. All the Dr. Bowen, the Alice Russell, the Mrs. Churchill, uh, her Borden blood relatives, and in particular, her cousins, the gardeners, over across the river in Swansea. Mm-hmm. And that's real important. That family, and I'm going to talk about them in a minute, they ended up being Emma's surrogate family when Emma abandoned Lizzie in 1905 and moved out. And where Emma, not only in her will but in other trust documents, remembered these people and took care of them financially, not one of those gardeners is mentioned in Lizzie's will, none of them. None of that side of her family. And that side of her family was tied into her mother, Sarah Morse, because the Morse and Gardners uh, married, and that's, that's how the connection came about. But it's interesting that that Gardner family that was so close to the Bordens for the first Lizzie and the second Lizzie, when it comes to the third Lizzie, no, absolutely not and yet they were very tight with with, uh, Emma. And and just to make it clearer to your listeners, the um, patriarch of the Gardner family was a man named Henry Augustus Gardner. He married a woman called Carolyn Cole Mason. Her sister married the brother of Sarah Morse. So there you had that Mm -hmm. connection. Now, Henry and Caroline had three sons, one of which was Oren Gardner, O-R-R-I-N. and He was younger than Emma and younger than Lizzie. He was one of the primary legatees in Emma's will. Now, Oren never married and never had children, but his brother had a son named Hamilton. And his brother died when his son Hamilton was about two, three years old, and Oren raised him. Emma knew him. Emma used to give him birthday presents. Uh, I have a, a document from the 50th wedding anniversary of Henry Augustus Gardner and Carolyn Cole Mason Gardner <clears> on <throat> their 50th wedding anniversary, and it was a guest sign-in sheet in Hamilton as a little toddler made his little ex and Emma signed it Emma was taken to that event by a Preston Gardner a nephew a cousin a nephew of uh, of Henry's and a cousin of Oren's <clears throat> but anyway this Oren you know he's the one who picked up Emma's body and they had the wake at his house at Riverby which he inherited from his father and uh, he was also this this is one reason why why uh, Lizzie was persona non grata. Um, there was a rumor that uh, Lizzie was going to be married and was having her trousseau together. This was splashed about in the papers. And it pointed to Oren Gardner as being the romantic interest, mm. her potential fiancé. Well, this was a shy schoolteacher man. The Gardners were like they had roots. They were founding families of Swansea. They were basically farmers. They weren't bankers and mill owners. But they were salt of the earth people and so intertwined with that whole community and Swansea's history. When this came out in the papers, Oren, you know, went into hiding. It was just scandalous and so embarrassing and just terrible. Uh, then, a few years later, it splashed on the front pages about the Tilden-Thurber shoplifting incident where Lizzie actually did steal two porcelain paintings. And, um, again, Preston Gardner got her out of that. But this that was the straw that broke the camel's back. From that point on, Henry and his sons, including Oren and his nephew Preston, another major legatee in Emma's will, because that's it. We're done with her, mm-hmm. you know. And there is no evidence. There is no documentation after that. I think it was eighteen ninety seven. The um, the front page splash in the Providence Journal about Lizzie, a warrant for Lizzie's arrest about stealing these things. <clears throat> uh, from that time on, there's no evidence, no letters that I'm aware of at this point that shows that she ever went, that Lizzie ever went to any family events in Swansea with the gardeners. Um, she would visit that farm. Uh, she would visit the farm, the upper farm, in Swansea, but she, no, no documentation of the interaction with the gardeners, unlike Emma. Now, I'm going to tell you something that has never been told before. <clears throat> Hamilton Gardner, he married... A woman named Doris, who was the daughter of the best friend of Henry Augustus's, um best friend of Henry Augustus Gardner, one of his sons. She was the daughter of him. Hamilton and Doris grew up. They went to grade school together, blah, blah, blah. They knew each other all their lives. They married. They had two sons. One of those sons has turned into a friend of mine and shared much information, not just things he's written to me about, things he's sent me, emailed me, scanned and sent. So I have documentation of this stuff. <clears throat> and here it is. Hamilton told his son that Oren Gardner used to have discussions with him about how the whole Gardner family knew that Lizzie had been sexually abused by Andrew.
1: Wow.
0: And Emma was in denial about it for years and then finally accepted it and became overly protective of Lizzie and always created the front of our darling father, our dearest father, But she knew. And so there never was this real love of Lizzie and, and Andrew, you know, all this talk. Oh, her adoring father. She gave him a ring which he wore on his pinky BFD. That really didn't mean a whole lot. Now, here's why is this, uh, relevant to your show and, and the kind of show that I'm speaking to right now? Here's where I see the relevancy. Almost every psychic or medium that I've come in, uh, contact with in connection with the Borden house, or that I have seen on documentaries, and even Lisa Nowicki, who does these seances there, um, have, have raised a question, summing up the spirit of Andrew. And the question is always, did you abuse Lizzie? I was there one night when she did pose that question. They were having a seance in the sitting room, and the table began to shake, and and supposedly Andrew said, no, no. He got really angry about it. Mm-hmm. And and that's, the, that's what you would expect. But here we have, I have documented proof that the Gardner family knew, in fact, Lizzie was abused by him. And supposedly this was another reason why Andrew wasn't really invited to the clubs like the a Ketchum club or, you know, uh, we used to think, oh, well, he wouldn't join those because, you know, he would would be too tight about paying the annual
2: dues. Yeah, he didn't want to spend the money he didn't want to have to buy a round. Yeah, and yeah, and, and yeah. he
0: can get all the information he wants through that kind of social networking just by talking to people at the bank. They didn't want him in that club. But in very tight circles, amongst the men, and some of the men shared the information with their wives, pillow talk a bit or whatever, there, the fall, some, some elements of the Fall River community knew that Lizzie had been, the, but it was just not talked about. I mean, this—oh, you know—we talk about these things. You got Nancy Grace, everybody on TV talking about this stuff all the time now. Mm-hmm. But back then, no way, no way. And <clears throat> another, another thing going back to the relevancy of this show—if that's the case—and keep in mind that at the eighteen, the nineteen ninety-two conference. This was a new theory, this incest theory. And a lot of papers were presented at that centennial conference regarding this theory. Uh, these these mediums and, and psychics pick up on that. Even if they're not summoning up Andrew, is it, you know, they, they get these vibes that incest happened there between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> until... Hamilton's son presented me with this documentation. I kept it in my mind as a theory, and and my personal feeling was it was ah, you know I think uh, Andrew was asexual. He only had three kids, five years apart. The only thing that got him off was the accumulation of money. Yada yada yada. But <clears throat> incest in those days wasn't wasn't something that was rare. It happened a lot. Um, more than we would we would we would believe and so now I am a firm believer that 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 contributed you know that explains the 10 whacks you know she just, she had just done 19 upstairs an hour and a half previous she, she knew that 10 was over but I think it was like whack you love her more than you love me you know when she found out that uh, he was going to give some property to, to Abby and you dirty old man, whack, you know. Uh, I think she was just releasing that pent-out rage.
2: Well, I mean, that's, I mean, I guess it's hard to to know the psychological profile of somebody who lived over 100 years ago, but I'm going to guess that you kind of have more insight with all the uh, study that you've done of Lizzie Borden. What do you think is more likely? Do you think it was a jealousy thing because she had this relationship with her father that she... Um cherish? No, no. I, no, no. Or, do you, or do you think she was... No,
0: I think Lizzie had long ceased to love her father. You know, um, incest between a father and a daughter, as the daughter grows up in the household, they almost forgive them, but they don't forget it's filed away in a dark place in their psyche. But the, but it's like a tug-of-war, the love-hate thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Lizzie... I think from uh, 1887 which was the um, the fiasco about the house on 4th Street with Abby's half-sister, the Whitehead House. That, that, I think, was the turning point for Lizzie where all love she may have had for Andrew went out the door because the realization was there that he was going to back his wife more than her. You know, she wasn't going to be able to... Um, erode that relationship but there was a real bond between Abby and Andrew and it was a kind of bond that Lizzie didn't help not that jealousy entered into it but it's remember Lizzie was always aware of her heritage and the fact that she was a Borden and a social cachet and, and her own self entitlement to that <clears throat> that uh, she and Emma both you know, always thought of Abby as a steppy beneath them Uh, They weren't Bordens. She was a blood Borden, you know, like we're the upper class, you're trash kind of thing. So I believe that the Rosetta Stone of the case is the conversation that happened Wednesday evening before the murders when Andrew and John Morse, the uncle who came to visit, had a conversation in the sitting room. By Lizzie's own inquest testimony, she talks about how their voices disturbed her. I believe that conversation had to do with the fact had to do with Andrew revealing to Morse that he was going to put that bigger farm, the upper farm in Abby's name. He was going to give it to Abby. And she heard that. In fact, I wrote a little blog piece about it. actually it's an extract from the screenplay I wrote of that entire scene and is how I believe it went down. I think Lizzie overheard that. And that just made her go bonkers. And maybe in that conversation it was, so as soon as I can, I'm going to have her sign the papers, you know, and Lizzie hears this. Now, it's interesting that whatever was said disturbed her so much that she went over to visit Alice Russell that evening, starts, you know, these prophecies of doom, something terrible is going to happen. I fear they're going to burn the house over over us father has so many enemies it was a cry for help is really what it was Mm -hmm. but the very next morning the very first opportunity lizzie had to be alone with abby abby gets killed her father comes home an hour and a half later the very first opportunity and as soon as it comes up that she is alone with her father he's killed so whatever hap- was going to happen, Lizzie had to make sure it didn't happen, and it was going to happen quickly. So she, Because why then? Why the next morning? Why not smother them in their sleep or something, you know, and some intruder did it? No. And she was in such a rage about the whole thing. Remember, she and Emma both were, were uh, afraid of not getting what they saw as their rightful share of their father's fortune when he were to pass away because they felt Abby was going to get it. And so I think the motive was money and and the overkill was her pent-up rage coming out from this dark place in her psyche of the sexual abuse. I hate you. I hate you. Mm-hmm. You love
2: her more than you, me, and you dirty old man. Whack, 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 whack. I put up with this for all this time, thinking I was going to get something out of it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, every time she's walking down the street or going to events at Central Congregation, she puts on this front of her dear father. And And everybody
2: probably raises an eyebrow to that. Yeah.
0: Well, not everybody, because only tight circles actually knew about this. And one of them was Leontine Lincoln, Victoria Lincoln's grandfather. And it was, when I went to visit... Victoria Lincoln Lowe's youngest daughter in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, a few years ago. She made available to me her grandfather's journals as well as her mother's journals. And sure enough, right there in Leontine's journal, he has an entry about where it is that Andrew's going to put the upper farm in Abby's name. Hmm. Victoria wrote about this in her book, A Private Disgrace, Mm -hmm. that it was known in banking circles that he was going to do this. And so it all fits. It all fits in that puzzle. But remember, everything I've been talking about for the last 15 minutes is Lizzie 2. This is Lizzie post-grand tour. Lizzie 2. And I wanna, I wanna after she it. After that trial, and she moved to Maplecroft, she became a different woman. Lizzie 3, I call her.
2: Well, I, I want to get into that a little bit later on about the Lizzie 3 and, and what my theory is as to why there's such a, a stark difference, but we do have a call on the line here, so let's go to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Faye Musselman. How you doing?
1: Hi. How are you doing? It's Keith. Hey,
2: Keith. How are you?
1: Good. I'm watching you guys on live stream. Well, hello. Hello there. Hello, Keith. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Yes, I have a, a question about... Yep, uh, and I'm waving to you guys there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a question as um, could it have anything to do with um, the day that was set for the murders because the the uh, police, the Fall River Police, of course, were on their annual picnic outing at uh, Rocky Point Amusement Park in uh, Warwick, Rhode Island. And I'm actually calling very close from there because I live right near where Rocky oh. Point used to be. And I'm wondering if there's any, like, pre-motivation that was planned for the day when the majority of the police force would be away for that entire day.
0: You know, I don't really think so. Um, That conversation the Wednesday evening was the catalyst. And uh, Lizzie may have fantasized many times laying on her little bed, um, fantasized about Abby being killed or maybe killing both of them, but I don't think she really planned anything out. I think she just uh was in panic mode that morning and had phenomenal luck. You know, the trajectory of the blood, the heart stopping. So this this wasn't a blood-splattered sitting room. There's there's no footprints of blood, there's no blood on the the, the west side except for a little bit on the door going into the parlor. There's no blood on the south side. <clears throat> if if she used as I think Andrew's Prince Albert, then she wiped the hatchet on that before she stuffed it down under his head. But I don't think what was going through her head, oh, tomorrow would be the day I should do it because half the police force will be gone. I think that was just coincidental. Mm -hmm. It does seem rather more
1: bloodless than what you would imagine such a uh, catastrophe would be. I mean, obviously the bodies are severely mutilated, but uh, there doesn't appear to be a lot of, like a pool of blood around the bodies. No, all over the place.
0: Uh, and remember Agnes DeMille Mille and um, Joseph Welch, Senator Joseph Welch of the famous, at long last Senator having you no know, sense of decency, Joseph Welch. Well, <clears throat> they were one of the few people allowed into Ninety-two Second Street back in the sixties before she wrote her book about um, the play, the um, the dance, uh, dance of death. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, she and Joseph McGinn uh, got together with Sylvia Knowlton, warring, and they saw the first-generation photographs of the crime scene. And what she wrote in her book, A Dance of Death, is called, uh, was, gee, they were both astounded when they saw those photographs that there wasn't a carnage of blood splatters all over the place. And she said, blood, no problem. You know? And there's, there's a much, much to do about how could Lizzie have done it if she was seen within 10, 15 minutes and she didn't have any blood on her? Mm-hmm. And, well, that was after the father's murder. Right. And I think his heart stopped after that first, the first of 19 whacks, so once the heart stops, there is no splattering. What True. was splattered came off the weapon
1: itself. Incidentally, my... My uh, family is uh, on my mother's side is very close to the Borden's uh, story, as Tim and Matt already know, because uh, my grandfather was actually a neighbor who grew up in the neighborhood of uh, Lizzie Borden, and uh, he was only not quite five years old when the murders took place, but uh, certainly remembered the aftermath. And uh... he uh, he was a neighbor in the 92 on Second Street or Ferry Street. Well, he he didn't live right on the street, but he lived within a mile radius. Okay, so it was down in that area, right? Not up on the hill. And yeah. um he, uh, of course, my family is buried next to the Bordens. If you see the darlings and the greens and the places, that's all my uh, mother's side of the family oh, in Oak nice. Grove Cemetery. So, yeah. you know, we do have that connection. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, do you reckon, was it ever said to you that growing up there that when they would pass the Borden house, they thought of it as a creepy haunted house? Was it known like that? I didn't really say that.
1: He just... um my grandfather's tale was that I guess she was living at Maplecroft there having a big party and a uh, grocery boy came, who was 19 years old, to deliver a pickle barrel. They had no way of opening it and Lizzie had told him, uh, just a moment, I'm going in the barn, I'll, I'll get an axe to open it with. She came back out and the kid was halfway down the street holding on to his hat running for dear life because yeah. uh, even though she'd been acquitted,
0: such was yeah. her reputation at I've, the time. I heard that. There's variations. This variation has it being a pickle barrel. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other was just you know groceries. Another was a handyman come to do some stuff. So I don't know if that's an urban legend or if it's based in fact. It must have been based in some kind of factual reference, or yes, like the like the whisper game. You know, you pass the whisper game down and it gets changed. Exactly. uh, Well, I you you know that was just a little commentary because I was talking earlier of how the house at ninety-two Second Street is, is morphed into now being transcended into, uh, instead of a, this historical side of a classic unsolved crime, into this haunted house. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And and I have never heard from my early conversations with Martha or Florence Brigham, uh, curator emeritus deceased of the Fall River historical site, that, that after the murders, that house was considered a haunted house and kids were creeped out about it. and no, I never heard that. I, My personal opinion, being
1: a, you know an investigator myself of some years, my personal opinion is that uh, it's the recognition that it's been given in recent years over the yeah. past uh, couple of decades. Yeah. I think that's the reason for the haunting, because it's the law of attraction yeah. that these spirits have been you know called in. Yeah. And,
0: well, like, you're uh, absolutely right about the timing. Yeah. I mean, don't you agree that the floodgates opened with the 1992 conference? Exactly, You know, those Borden families, the 6th, um, 7th, and 8th, well, 7th, 8th, and 9th generation Bordens, mm-hmm.
4: uh,
0: they set the tone uh, with this code of uh, silence, this code of, she was acquitted and we just don't talk about it, and we will not talk about it at the dinner table or anywhere else in this whole... Oh, yes. And in that, they were so powerful and so influential, that that code of silence that... That lasted for decades. Do you know that um, in 1953 they had the 150th anniversary of the founding of Fall River? And the Fall River Herald News came out with, I have the whole set. It's like three and a half, four pounds. It runs over 100 pages, this commemorative edition. And they cover everything, everything, sports, arts, the theatrical people that visited uh, the early settlers, the Revolutionary War, everything. <clears throat> and they give one column. One column on the Lizzie Borden case. Oh, really? And one picture of her. I'm not kidding. That is surprising. Yeah. Even for the time, that's surprising. 1953, it was still... We don't talk about it. We just, you know... She was bad. For, that whole scandal thing was, was just... It was scandalous. It was painful. It was bad for business, damn it. <laughs> so we don't talk about it. But then, <clears throat> in the 60s, you had Edward Redine come out with his book. Victoria Lincoln come out with her book. Uh, Edner, Edward Snow. Edward S. Snow wrote a number of chapters in his books. And then you had uh, Flynn's book, Flynn coming out with the facsimile of Porter's Fall River Tragedy. And so... So then, it just kind of kicked off, and and then as um, electronic and digital media advanced, there was more platforms in which to tell this tale to subsequent generations. That's well,
1: a tale I'll always remember, that's for sure.
2: Well, and and you've been there, Keith. So you've uh, you've had you know you've been able to touch history, as they say.
1: Oh yes, yes indeed. And, Hopefully we'll do so again soon.
2: All right. Well, you take care, and we will. We will definitely do that soon.
1: Great talking to you, and uh, thanks for your wonderful guest for answering my question. Thanks.
2: Yes,
0: nice talking to you, Keith. All right, take care okay. now.
1: Have Thank a great you.
0: Bye
2: bye. Yeah, we are coming up on the news, so we will have to take a break in a few minutes. So I don't really want to get into the idea of this Lizzie three and, and what I think is the difference here, but um, some of the questions that are coming out of the chat room uh, that we want to address. Uh, one person wanted to know. Um, why exactly it is and I don't know if this is a question you can answer in four minutes but what is it that drew you into the Lizzie case to study it so intently um, you know this person even suggested that maybe you were tied into this case somehow in a past life
0: oh that's interesting <laughs> did I tell you about the psychic I went to no when I when I met you guys for the first time didn't I tell you about this psychic Cabrina Kincaid I went to see
2: you may have but why don't you uh, refresh our memory
0: okay um This was in uh, 1978. My son was eight years old. And I'd just gotten interested in in Lizzie. And my girlfriend was into psychics. I wasn't. I didn't believe in that stuff. She said, oh, you've got to go see this woman. She's psychic to the stars. She's really good. She kept on me about it. I said, okay, make an appointment, but don't tell her anything about me. Don't even tell her I'm your friend. Don't tell her we work together. And I worked at the... Long Beach Police Department at that time. She was in narcotics and she was in um, intelligence and I was in narcotics. So this woman lived in Reseda. I lived in Long Beach and I get lost driving out there in the traffic. I'm so pissed. I'm so mad. By the time I knock on her door and she opens the door and she says, um, she says, oh my goodness, you were so mad. There's such a red aura about you. Well, that got my attention. And without dragging this out too much, she proceeded. I I never said a word. I kept my mouth, because I had heard that you give signals, and they Mm -hmm. feed on these signals. You know, like, I'm seeing an M. Is there an M in your family? Well, Jesus, everybody's got an M in their family, right? So I never said a word. She proceeded to tell me that um, I have one son, that I had three pregnancies, but one child, and I'll never have another child. Absolutely true. She told me that a man was coming from a great body of water and that he was in love with me, he would propose to me, and if I married him, my life would take one path. If I didn't, it would take another path, and I would never marry. Well, there a friend of mine from Hawaii. He came Christmas Eve and proposed to me, and I didn't marry him, and I never have married. How would this woman know that? That That is just too dead on. So are there people that are psychic? Get <laughs> that straight, because I met
2: one. <laughs> Well, what's funny, though, is it's really bad for business when it takes, you know, a long time for it to come to fruition. You know, when yeah. they tell you for the rest of your life, that's yeah. usually a saying of, well, I probably won't be back then because <laughs> I'm going to yeah. have to think of that, one, yeah. think on that for a while. No, so.
0: I I blew it off. You know, I, she got my attention. I thought it was interesting, especially when she named, she said I had one son and it was a boy and it was blonde and all these things were dead on. But, uh, as the years have passed and my life has gone, I mean, she was absolutely
2: right. We're going to have to get you in for a past life regression at some point. Yeah. All right. Well, we are coming up on the news break. When we come back, though, we'll bring you back on to talk some more about Lizzie Borden. We'll get more into some of these paranormal stories that we've heard from investigations and from mediums and psychics, and, and we'll try to peel away some of the layers and find out more about the real Lizzie Borden. We also have some guests in the studio who are going to be joining in in the conversation, some paranormal investigators who are going to want to ask some questions because, Again, paranormal research is just that. It's research, and uh, too much of it is on the ghost story and not the history itself. So we're going to talk more about the real history of Lizzie Boyden coming up in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast, also broadcasting live on Fate Radio as well. Be right back.
4: unplug from your chairs get up and look in a mirror we're not meant to experience the world through a machine
1: this is the point i'm talking about my life i can't seem to get that through to you i'm not just talking about one person i'm talking about everybody i'm talking about form i'm talking about content i'm talking about
0: interrelationships i'm talking about god the devil hell heaven do you understand
3: finally
1: spooky south coast is back
2: All right, welcome back to our number two here on Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, broadcasting on WBSM as well as live on Fate Radio. If you go to com slash Fate Radio, you can see inside the Spooky Studio, and you can also join in in the chat room. Uh, that is what, now where our chat room is being held, um, so that we can interact with you during the program and you can see us typing and you know, when you're a guest on Spooky South Coast and you're home and you're calling in, and uh, you see us paying attention to the computer, you'll know that we are listening, but we have, are multitasking. So uh, that's—I always feel bad, like knowing that they can see into the studio. So I'm like, all right, I go to type while they're talking. I'm listening. I'm just in the chat room and running the video and all that stuff. So, but uh, we will be getting back to the discussion with Faye Musselman in just a minute about the real Lizzie Borden. And, and as I said at the top of the show, she's kind of become this. A paranormal icon, but too much of the information has been lost uh, in terms of what really happened, who she really was, and it's been overshadowed by what we've heard from Frank's box or the telephone to the dead, uh, what we've captured on EVP, what we've uh, experienced with mediums in the room. So a lot of those stories have kind of taken over. The actual history of Lizzie Borden. So we're going to be getting back into that with Faye, and we have joining us in the studio. We have Reverend Clarissa Vasquez of the Colorado Coalition for Paranormal Investigation. That's and, right, and uh, she is here with us because you guys are out on a road trip. We are. And did you literally drive from Colorado to here?
5: We did. We drove wow. just under forty hours to get here.
2: Well, it's well worth the drive. Absolutely. This is the probably one of the most haunted areas in the country, in my opinion. Not just Massachusetts, but the South Coast in general.
5: Yeah, the entire New England area has just been phenomenal so far.
2: And you were mentioning some of the places that you uh, had investigated already.
5: Yeah, we've done Nine Man's Misery. Um, We did a monastery in Cumberland and uh, Mercy Brown. And we're looking to hit a few more places before we head out on Tuesday. Um, so but we're also out here for the launch of our sister team ECCPI, uh, which the first official investigation for that team is tomorrow
2: night. And that would be East Coast Coalition. East Coast Coalition. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at these acronyms. There's so many of them now. It's at least you're going with ones that make sense and not just are catchy names like, you know.
5: Right. Well, when it came time to decide the name for the new team, you know, we wanted them to be. The, the founder of the new team wanted it to be similar to ours since yeah. it since it is a sister team and we are teaming up and partnering up and essentially melding two teams.
2: Uh, I think there's actually a paranormal group now called Bieber, where it's okay. like all the different initials stand for something. Is that paranormal. any
5: relation to the team called Snap It?
2: I don't know. Is there a, Th- team, there's called a team
5: called Snap It? <laughs> right,
2: whatever works. It's all marketing, says the guy who named the show Spooky South Coast. Brand the brain. So uh, we are going to be getting more into Lizzie Borden, but being a paranormal investigator, I'm sure you've heard of Lizzie Borden and heard probably more of the paranormal stories than you have the history in the last few years.
5: Well, of course. You know, Lizzie Borden is one of the one of the top places. It's almost almost a mecca for investigators to want to go to. It's up there with the Stanley Hotel, Tombstone, Waverly, Queen Mary, things of that nature. You know, Almost every investigator strives to do the Lizzie
2: Borden house You know, before they die. Well, um, and maybe after. I mean, you could do it that way, too. Possibly. So uh, let's bring back in Faye into the discussion, because I had mentioned uh, at the top of the show when she was talking about uh, in the first hour, I mean, when she was talking about the different um, phases of Lizzie Borden, the three distinct portions of her life, I-, I wanted to talk more about this third Lizzie that you were discussing because, uh, in my belief, she got away from the house at 92 sec- uh, ninety two second Street, and that is when she became this new Lizzie because whatever is in that house uh, had a direct control over her.
0: That's true. That's true. And she couldn't get up on the hill fast enough, could she?
2: But, I mean, nope. I mean that being her preference of where to live, but, I mean, do you think it might have also been to try to get as far away from that location? No,
0: I think she always aspired to live up there. Uh, it's where a proper Borden should be, and that's how she saw herself. And uh, now she was free to do it. You know, shortly after her acquittal, she and Emma visited Sheriff Wright, but they had gone to Newport. She went to Newport and stayed with the covels. And um, and then right after that, she and Emma began house hunting. And uh, in my newspaper records of the time, there were several houses they went to see before they settled on the French Street property. <clears throat> and I get the impression that Emma was sort of, well, whatever you like, Lizzie, it's fine with me, I'm sure... Lizzie picked out that house just as she decorated it. You know, the wallpaper, the curtains, the sconces all of that is Lizzie's hand. Uh, Emma was content with her small little bedroom, and she wasn't into things or possessions, artifacts that uh, Lizzie was. So <clears throat> that house was almost like um, a child, the child that Lizzie never had. I mean, she clothed it, and fed it, nurtured it, embraced it, loved it, took care of it. Uh,
2: and Doobie, not so much, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, Doobie. <laughs> um, but, but that house still has her fingerprints all over it, and, you know, to walk through it, and I've been in, in it several times, and she had exquisite taste, and she had the money to buy nothing but the best. And <clears throat> what, we, what we get from this third Lizzie her post-acquittal life in Maple Maplecroft, is how good and kind she was to all her servants, her cooks, her maids, her chauffeurs, her traveling companions. Um, they, they never had a bad thing to say about her. And isn't this remarkable that not even any descendant of any of the people that ever worked for Lizzie has come out and said, what a, what a witch she was, and I, I think she did it, you know. No, it's always kind stuff. It's always about how nice she was. Now, <clears throat> at the forefront, I want to say that the, Michael Martin, the curator, and Dennis Binet, the assistant curator of the Fall River Historical Society, their book, Parallel Lives, which is about that whole time span of her life, 1860 to 1927, she was born and when she died, uh, is going to reveal much because the content of this 600-page book which has over 500 photographs, they say, many of which have never been seen before, and letters and journal entries and stuff, it is going to tell us a lot about Lizzie that hasn't come out before. And I think it's all going to point in the direction of how Lizzie 3 was considered so kind and generous. She's, she's not described as odd. Lizzie 1 and 2 was described as odd. Um so so we really have a different Lizzie, a transformed woman who went through her late thirties, her menopausal years, her senior her early senior years until she died at the age of sixty six, almost sixty seven. <clears throat> a different kind of Lizzie. And remember, this was a woman who was born in the Victorian age, her salad days in young womanhood was the Edwardian era, most of her life was the Edwardian era, and her waning years were the Jazz Age. Um, so she saw a lot. She was born at a time when public conveyance was wagons and, and carts, and, uh, and the week she died, the papers were celebrating Lindbergh flying solo to Paris. So she spanned all that era. <clears throat> but it's important to, to keep in mind... That where Lizzie 1 and 2 was described as not popular in school, few friends, mm-hmm. uh, in fact she dropped out of, in high school her, jun- her junior year, <clears throat> there weren't a lot of nice things to be said about Lizzie. Well, Lizzie 3, the people that were closest to her, whether they were subservient to her, whether they were servants or friends, always had something good to say.
2: Here's here's one of those paranormal investigator stories that they like to share amongst themselves, and it's something that's kind of taken on legs in, in the paranormal community, and that's the idea that there was a cat that had lived in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, what have you heard about the story of the, the stray cat that had kind of come to live in the house and what ended up, how well, it Well, that was sound. down
0: on 2nd on Street, and it was supposedly Abby's cat, and that... Um, uh, the cat was annoying a visitor, and Lizzie took the cat and and uh, cut its head off or something, and came back and said, "Well, that cat's not going to bother anybody anymore." Total urban legend. Okay. What we really have is Lizzie three documented that um, she found a, a wounded dog, wounded dog or cat, and took it and nursed it and brought it back together. Uh, there's this horse farm. Out, just outside of Boston, that she gave lots of money to. She didn't um, have her horses stored there, I mean housed there, but she gave a significant amount of money. So much that they put a plaque up in gratitude with her name. That's still there, um, Apple Farm or something. I wrote a blog about it. But no, Lizzie loved animals, and, and, and you know this is how she she um, made this. Common bond with Helen Layton. They were charter members of uh, 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 the Fall River Animal Rescue League, of which she left fifty grand. So, Lizzie chopping off the head of a cat? No, I,
2: I don't think so. Well, I mean, but that's one of the things that I'm wondering is this this the parallel between Lizzie two and Lizzie three? Is if she was in this house and under the influence of whatever was controlling on this house, is, is it? It's possible that maybe that actually happened, and then the real Lizzie, the one that we saw when she got away from it, was kind to animals, made these donations to the animal societies and everything. So it's uh, that's, it, that's a possibility. It's a big you, dichotomy between everything that we know from when she lived there and everything that happened afterwards. When you
0: frame it in the context of the paranormal and these dark forces being having an influence on her, my mind's not totally open to that, but that is a possibility. That is a possibility. Uh, you know, consider this. The houses up on the hill, the Victorian houses were were painted bright and beautiful with teal and maroon and shades of orange and yellow. <clears throat> 92 Second Street, and we have it from preliminary hearing testimony as well as trial testimony, which was relevant to the explanation of her blood-stained dress which which uh, Alice Russell saw her burning. Anyway, the point being that Andrew let Lizzie pick out the shade of paint, not his wife No, who ran the household, but Lizzie. And what did Lizzie pick? (laughs) Not the colors of the houses up on the hill. She picked this god-awful drab color. And we know the exact color because when Leanne had this last painting done, they they scraped it down to all these layers, and they found that that original layer. It was an ugly, drab color. It's not exactly the the green that's on the house now, which is sort of an attractive green to me. This was an ugly color. It was almost as if she was, her defiant attitude was, I hate this house so much, I'm painting this. That's the color I'm going to pick. Father said I could pick whatever color I want, and that's the color I'm going to have. This. But she didn't on Maplecroft. Maplecroft, she had it in this beautiful shades of, of uh, gray and white, and uh, and everything was, was beautiful in that house.
2: But <laughs> it came time. Until so, you know, she painted the interior red, arterial red.
0: Yeah, arterial red, red. Her room had reddish wallpaper. Um, So were dark forces at play there influencing her choice of color? I don't know. I just... That Lizzie, too, coming back in 1890 from the Grand Tour, think of her having to carry that chamber pot at least twice a day up and down those stairs and down to the cellar and back and up to the second floor after she had been used to toilets, flushing toilets. Mm Mm-hmm. And knowing that her father could afford indoor plumbing or a house on the hill. Imagine that continued hatred of having to live there, you know?
2: And when you add, when you factor into that, just the the whole relationship of everybody in the house, I mean, we're not... People often get... They, they misconstrue it when they're hearing it and they're outside of the area or they're outside of the story and they're just hearing about Lizzie Borden. They think she was actually younger than she was, and that they kind of had to live uh, with the parents at that time, but they, they really didn't. I mean, they were old enough, Emma and, and Lizzie, to be able to move out and be on their own. Yeah, Lizzie but they was only like got in the remember,
0: uh, Emma $4 a week. Andrew paid Emma, Lizzie, and his wife $4 a week. And that $4 for Abby, she had to use for household things, we... We also have it documented where a member of her family said she even had to buy the curtains out of her allowance where Lizzie and Emma could spend the money on just what they wanted. Well, $4 wouldn't even get you a round-trip ticket to go to Boston uh, on the uh, Plymouth or, or one of those beautiful steamers, the Priscilla. They couldn't do that. And even if they did have more money for, of an allowance to go out and about, they didn't have the clothes. Mm. And clothes were important. Lizzie had like six, seven dresses that came out in the trial testimony, but they weren't the kind of dresses that you went to cotillions with, or you went to these certain social parties and events. So without the clothes, you couldn't you couldn't travel in those. They didn't have the means, let alone let alone the financial means to have a house on their own. Now I've often said, if Andrew. You know, Lizzie paid, what, $11,000? They paid $11,000 for Maple Cross, which is a big chunk of money in those days. So he could have found something less expensive but suitable for them within the boundaries of the highlands of the hill up there for maybe six, eight grand. And said, look, uh, the uh, turmoil in this household, I've had it. You girls go live. I'm buying a house for you. Go live in that house by yourself. They've been the happiest ducks. And he probably would have died in his sleep is a very old man. I he wasn't going to part with that money. Anyway, back to Lizzie in, in, in Maplecroft. Consider now, mm-hmm. she's got the money to buy the finest things, surround herself with all those things that make her happy, that she loves, that she treasures. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, Lizzie wasn't about, look at all the stuff I've got. Lizzie was about surrounding herself with beautiful things. Um Good literature, exquisite furniture, good jewelry, the best wallpaper, silk linens, I mean silk linen draperies, beautiful stuff, likewise, when it came time for her to give gifts or whatever, and she was very thoughtful. we have I think a lot of this is going to come out in parallel life. She gave very expensive gifts, and um, didn't she give someone a car? Yeah, her chauffeur. And she helped other people with their school education, and, and uh, she did a lot of kind acts. Helen Layton referenced this, and particularly Grace Hartley Howe, her second cousin. Um, you, you know that, that connection, who Grace Hartley Howe was, besides being the first postmistress of Fall River? Her husband was Louis McHenry Howe. Louis McHenry Howe was private secretary and right-hand man and politi- chief political strategist for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Hmm. <clears throat> now, had Lizzie lived just a few years longer, it's very likely she would have taken tea at the White House with Eleanor and her cousin. Can you imagine that? Oh.
2: <laughs> and, or they could have, yeah, I mean, and I FDR actually spent a lot of time here um, even before he was president, too, so they yeah. may have even crossed paths. Um one one thing that I wonder uh, is a lot of people, you know, we're talking about this different, the Lizzie 2, the Lizzie 3, how getting away from, uh, I'm theorizing that getting away from the house made her be more of herself. But another thing somebody might suggest here is a lot of these kind acts that we saw from Lizzie later in her life were actually the result of guilt. You know, she committed this murder and she was portrayed as a monster and now she had to do everything she could to make it look like, you know, she was this kind person, that she didn't commit these horrible acts.
0: Well, uh, we do know that Lizzie was was, uh, more than once described as uh, depressed, nervous, nervous anxiety, depressed, even her cousin said this about her, and Helen Layton said this about her, the two primary legacies in Lizzie's will. <clears throat> and I think that came from a guilty conscience. Coupled with, um, Lizzie couldn't stand the rebuff. Lizzie, just prior to the murders, Lizzie was on the cusp of getting into that inner circle. She was just on the cusp of it. She had recently become secretary on the women's board of the Fall River Hospital. She was active in all the departments of the Central Congregational Church. Um, she was ingratiating herself through um, her mentor, Mrs. Holmes, whose father was, was uh, Charles Holmes. <clears throat> and that's an interesting thing because Charles' son and his grandson continued to run that five and ten cent savings bank in Fall River. For 150 years it was Holmes in there. Um, anyway, <clears throat> she... She uh, ingratiated herself to these people. I forgot the point I was making. My mind just wandered. Well, the I, I will. Oh, you were you were saying about I was saying about her guilt, yeah. her, her um, nervous anxiety and depression, which was. So often commented on, particularly after her death.
2: And, and what about? I mean, I, I don't know how much this has been proven or disproven since. But you know, Victoria Lincoln had mentioned the uh, possibility of her suffering from
0: deep uh, mal epilepsy.
2: Uh, yeah, a form of epilepsy. I mean, is that anything that's been discussed further since uh, *A Private Disgrace*? No.
0: Well, <clears throat> I think that was the hook for the book. Mm-hmm. Hooks with hooks, and that was Vicky's Vicky's hook. Um, it fit her, her it fit her theory of how things went down and but, you know, Victoria Link got a lot of things right, she really had her thumb on the pulse of that stratified society and when you read her personal diaries and so forth, uh, and her family and what her family went through because they were they weren't the the, the staunch conservative Republicans that ran the town, they were liberal thinkers and Democrats and, and they, they didn't get invited to certain parties um <clears throat> she <clears throat> Victoria Lincoln was very very um very accurate in much of what she wrote to me with the exception of that petite mal epilepsy.
2: And even that I mean it was kind of weakly supported in the book. It
0: was weakly supported.
2: <clears throat> you know, and she kind of used that the the whole idea of the the kleptomania and you know, a lot of it just seemed like, tied into
0: the, Lizzie's menstrual cycle and all that.
2: Mm-hmm. It, it just seemed like a lot like of, it was a lot
0: of um, uh, children, young adults, and adults of uh, child abuse uh, do shoplift. Have, have done shoplifting. I mean, this is this is a, a common behavior pattern. Uh, well, well, I think that Lizzie. Uh, I think after eighteen ninety seven. The scandal of that being discovered, the Tilden-Thurber incident. I don't think she ever stole anything after that.
2: At least didn't get caught.
0: No. But here, but here, remember Lizzie 3, the Maplecroft Lizzie. You will not find anywhere Lizzie being described by people that knew her, worked for her, traveled with her, were friends with her, whatever, saying that she was rude or abrasive or haughty or spacey, or vacuous look to her eye, eyes, uh, mean-spirited. None of this, but some of this is described about her before she moved, uh, before she was acquitted. <clears throat> I I think what happened is she just suddenly was <clears throat> her spirit was free. I mean, she just, she suddenly got what she wanted, and and what she wanted was to live up on that hill and get into that that circle. But where she got the goodies, she did not, She her social cachet with her name did not um, get her into those homes and, yeah, and into it that, that it center circle, tainted. and as we know, she was rebuffed and ignored and, and not isolated, but um, people turned their backs on her, most of them.
2: Well, as the, as the great sage Willy Wonka once said, you know what happened to the boy who got everything he ever wanted? He lived happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, all right. While well, we take a break, uh, when we come back, we will talk more with our guest Faye Musselman about Lizzie Borden and, and Clarissa Vasquez is here, Reverend Clarissa Vasquez. Uh, can I ask CCPI. Clarissa a real Ap- quick question? Absolutely.
5: Sure, go ahead. Yeah,
0: I was struck by your remark that um, all paranormal investigators, you know, they, they, coming to the Lizzie house is like the mecca. There's certain places they want to do, and and that's on, on the top of the list. How long has that been an attraction? Has that been in the past decade, or to your knowledge, is this something that paranormal investigators were interested in back in the 60s, 70s, 80s?
5: Okay, first, it's most paranormal investigators, not all paranormal investigators, uh, consider that to be a mecca. Everybody uh, kind of has their own favorites, and and others uh, tend to go with the flow and tend to go with what's more popular. Um, I would imagine that the Lizzie Borden House has picked up fame and notoriety probably within the last 10 to 15 years yeah um, as more people have gone and investigated and as more people have gathered uh paranormal evidence on location yeah it's gaining in popularity and more people are wanting to come and and see for themselves what's going on
2: i'd, I'd probably pinpoint it to 1996 when it opened as a b and b because until that point it had only been a very small mm-hmm. number of people who had been allowed to to go in That's-
0: True, Anyone and have, I, I've have never read sure. anywhere or heard anywhere where John McGinn uh, allowed paranormal investigators in. No,
2: no but Martha did kind of mention after the fact that she had had some experiences there.
0: Yeah, and I, I talked about that earlier, yeah.
2: And I don't know how much of that was marketing at that point, though. <laughs>
0: I do think it goes back to 92, and then with that conference, and then the opening of the B&B, as you said, and Clarissa, I think you're right on the last 10, 15 years.
2: And it, it, you merge
0: that with this explosion of the general population's interest because the, the uh, platforms of which the information can be received through um, uh, the media, the Internet, the documentaries, YouTube, all of that stuff, uh, spreads the word out, you know.
2: And our our content director, before we go to... Uh... Before we go to commercial, our content director, Christopher Balzano, wants me to ask you if uh, Red Acre was the horse farm that you were talking about earlier. That's okay. it. There you go, Chris.
0: Thinking of red apples, that's why I said apples. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, well, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll take your calls, 508-996-0500, 1877 996 We'll be right back talking about the real Lizzie Borden with Faye Musselman on Spooky South Coast in just a few minutes.
1: Celebrated murder cases, one that rocked Fall River, Massachusetts, and the entire country, late in the last century. The crime was, and still is, a shocking one, but since it actually happened, and is a matter of record, we felt it unwise to pretty up the details to make them palatable for the squeamish. I venture that by this time you can see we are not presenting a romantic comedy tonight, so instead, we shall show you a slightly different
3: interpretation of the Lizzie Borden story. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades.
2: Spooky
1: South Coast is back.
2: All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast, broadcasting live on WBSM and Fate Radio. Fatemag.com slash Fate You know, the new Fate Magazine website we'll be launching this week. Uh, If you go to Fatemag.com, I believe it's uh, August 2nd is the planned launch date, and you can read Matt Moniz's column there on UFOs, uh, as well as all of our friends who are writing for the site, Nick Redfern, uh, Tiffany Johnson. So many of our friends and people that we rely on in the paranormal field are involved with Fate Magazine, and we're glad to be able to be associated with it as well. So the new website launches August 2nd. And then SpookySouthCoast.com has a new website coming. Well, it'll it'll still be SpookySouthCoast.com, but it's going to look a little different. It's going to be completely revamped in a more interactive fashion. There's going to be reasons for you to go there every single day. Our content director, Christopher Balzano, is now uh, on board. He's part of the show. He's a member of the Spooky crew, even though he doesn't believe us. And uh, he'll be helping us to make a a place where it's going to be something you want to visit every day. You know, Maybe it'll even be your home page. It's going to be where you're going to go to learn and discuss and talk about the paranormal. And then on Saturday nights, of course, we'll be here with the show as well. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll let you know when that's going to happen. I haven't talked to Chris about this, Matt, but maybe uh, maybe we can give the people who are on the mailing list uh, a little bit of a sneak preview maybe sometime soon. Sure. You know, send out a mailing list uh, to all our people on the mailing list, uh, a little link to check out one of these pages. and sure. a little teaser. And they can join the mailing list by going to SpookySouthCoast.com and signing up there. And uh, you'll get up-to-the-minute updates right before we go on the (laughs) Saturday nights. (laughs) But that's part of what we're working on, though. With this new expanded website, we're also going to have once-a-month newsletters that are going to be like a little mini-magazine where you can learn more about uh, the topics that we talk about here on the show. So basically what we want to do is we want to infiltrate your life. You know, we're not happy with just uh, taking over your whole life for a couple hours once a week. We want to make sure that we're there every day, that your thoughts never stray far from us, and that at night when you go to sleep and you close your eyes, you see us peeking at you from behind your eyelids.
5: So (laughs) moving on to
2: happier topics, let's get back into our discussion with Faye Musselman about Lizzie Borden. And, again, we have Reverend Clarissa Vasquez from CCPI here with us, and uh, she can feel free to jump in with questions at any time. And you can also call in 508 996 500 one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, and we do have a call on the line. So let's take that call. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Fay Musselman. How are you doing?
4: Oh, you Hi. To yeah, this off. is Dan over in Woods Hole. I really have been enjoying your show since it came on Saturday. It's wonderful. It's thank you, fascinating, informational, a lot of fun. Thank you. And tonight's topic is terrific. Fay, uh, thanks for all the information. And. Um, Something, uh, I, I'm in my mid-50s, and I've heard the story since I was very young. And I, I grew up in upstate New York, and I heard about it.
2: So, I mean, that's it's definitely uh, a worldwide phenomenon, the story of Lizzie Boyden. It's, I mean, I guess the Elizabeth Montgomery movie helped put it into the spotlight as well. Did you ever catch that movie? Yes,
4: I was just going to say that a made-for-TV movie about 40 years ago.
2: Yeah, it, was, it was, uh I don't know, I mean, Faye, you probably know the details more about the Elizabeth Montgomery movie of Wanted Air and what network it was on.
0: Yeah, it was uh Paramount Studios made for TV movie, 1975, it premiered uh in the L.A. market, <clears throat> and it, it's done a lot to foster urban legends about Lizzie, you know, doing the murders in the nude with an axe, I mean, come on. Um, yeah, it was
4: overboard, but it did. And Newt Elizabeth
0: a lot Montgomery is
2: not anything to complain yeah. about.
0: You know what <laughs> I what I really liked about that movie, that film, was the uh, actress who played Bridget, and the actress who played um, Emma. I think their characters were right on the button. I think Emma was exactly as portrayed in that, and feel he, he was. The Nola, Fiola, something like that, that played um, Bridget. And I thought she was just excellent. So, but there was a, a lot of things that were wrong at the get-go about that. Um, and they should have had John Morris in it, because that was a pivotal point, his visit. Um, but also, much of the dialogue, and I have a copy of that script, much of the dialogue was verbatim out of trial testimony, so... Oh. It was well executed, and, and I'm glad we have it. But unfortunately, um, people buy into everything they see. There, and it wasn't factual. Uh, what was the gentleman's name that was just speaking? I'm
2: sorry. What, what's your name? Called? Oh, my name is Dan.
0: Yeah, Dan. Um, you said something that I thought was a, a, a good point <clears throat> about having
4: heard of it, and you live in northern. New England you know, or in something. I in upstate New York, and I heard about it when, when I was about eight, nine years old Yeah. The early 60s. People all over the world have heard of Lizzie Borden and oh, yes. Jack the Ripper.
0: Those are the two. <laughs> Jack well, the that, Ripper and Lizzie Borden, you know?
4: Well, was, like the uh, Beatles two, and the
0: Rolling two, Stones. Everybody's heard about them. And particularly Jack the Ripper. If you were to stop the man on the street in any community in any state in the country, they're going to know who Jack the Ripper was. You will find people that have never heard of Lizzie Borden. Uh, yeah. But the two she she is she's the closest second, you know. Uh and so when people go to libraries and they want to look up unsolved classic crimes, those are the
4: the two pedigrees, mm-hmm. the Borden case and Jack the Ripper. Well, I love the way you've given us all this insight into the third phase of her life with uh, so few get to hear, but...
0: Yeah, and I like want to
4: share something else right now before we do run out of
0: time, because it's significant. Lizzie's will was probated for about... It had four special hearings during... Uh, special probate hearings, because Helen Layton and Grace Hartley Howe contested Charles Cook's claim of getting the Henry House next door, that was $10,000 that... Lizzie meant that to be for him. Mm. So they went to court, and the chauffeur, Ernest Terry, I'm going to read you a portion from a clipping I've got. Okay. The chauffeur told of being... Remember, he's testifying this. The chauffeur told of being given a blank check by Miss Borden the morning of the day she died, that the check was to cover repairs to his own home which Miss Borden had promised some time ago to pay for. He said he first refused the check, but that Miss Borden insisted he take it as she felt she would die soon. This is the day she's dying. And she died in her home. So we know he was there and her maids were there.
4: Hmm. He first refused. Well,
0: Lizzie,
4: take it she would die. one other thing. I, I, I'd heard that she used to spend summers, uh, well, times in the summer, in Fairhaven. Is, is that true?
0: Well, Emma visited in Fairhaven. Uh, I don't know if Lizzie did, but let me just finish this portion of the article. Yeah. She said Lizzie directed him to go to the bank immediately to cash the check, and that the bank officials okayed the check for $2,500. After communicating with Mr. Cook, who was the executor of Lizzie's will, he said Mr. Cook later tried to convince him that the check offset his claim for $3,000 bequeathed him in Miss Borden's will, but that he, Ernest Terry, eventually got the 3000 Now, why is this significant? Here's this woman who has been notorious in her town because of these, these notorious crimes shunned by her own society. And she's dying, and she knows she's dying. And what's on her mind? Not a deathbed confession. Not, oh, poor me. She's thinking about what she had promised her chauffeur, and she's concerned about those, you know, over $2,000 worth of repairs that she promised. And so she wants him to take this check. This is Lizzie 3.
1: This is Lizzie 3
0: who appreciated rewarded, took care of, never forgot kindnesses of those people that were good to her. And the Terry family, uh, Mr. Terry himself, got real estate, he got a car, he got cash, his wife got cash and jewelry, his daughter got cash. The whole Terry family and descendants descendants of them live in that area today have nothing but good things to say about Lizzie. It seems like... It cannot be over stated what the yep. phrase of she never
4: forgot a kindness and she never forgave a betrayal
2: hey, what were you saying caller
4: oh and she uh goes into our lizzie threes you say it sounds like all the burdens that were on her soul of her whole life were lifted and she was actually herself for the, the yeah. first time right through to her death
0: yeah you know you'll read you'll read in newspaper accounts uh, right after her death, when the papers went out to interview people that knew her or that were named in her will, and they say uh, she did many charitable acts that she kept quiet that people didn't know about, and little things have come forth like uh, um, providing for the college education of people, providing uh, books for school children that couldn't afford them, clothes. Every year she would take new school clothes for, for children that whose families couldn't afford it. But she wanted anonymity. Only little pieces have come out. I think we're going to learn a lot more about Lizzie Three through Parallel Lives. Time for a new movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and don't we have fun, you know, imagining the casting on that?
4: <laughs> well, anyways, thank you, uh, thank, thank you, you all very much for listening
2: much. and thank you for calling in. <laughs> Good. thank you. Good night. So yeah, I mean, it definitely is a, a story that. Uh, Fits perfectly into some sort of Hollywood production, and it's amazing that they have not revisited it. I mean, there's—I know there's a movie coming out called Lizzie uh, that is a modern story that kind of connects to the to the murder case. But there has been numerous re- uh, recreations done at the house for different uh, television shows, be it for the Travel Channel or for paranormal shows.
0: Many of them are just repackaged, regurgitated.
2: So, I mean, it's it's certainly something that can be feasibly done. The, the house is available, you know, Hollywood, if you want to come calling. Yeah. Le, Leanne will definitely rent it out to you. Yeah. And there's enough people that could be extras, and I'm just surprised that it's not something that people are willing to revisit. I guess because to the general public, nothing new has come out about the case, but they're just not paying attention.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think the interior of the house is really conducive to... Um to Steven Spielberg or Michael Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino or James Cameron, who are the four directors, any one of which I'd like to see do this story. I can't
2: imagine. I cannot imagine Quentin Tarantino's oh. Lizzie Borden. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, the soundtrack ought to be good. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I'd prefer Spielberg. But my point is, the interior of that house, while it's been conducive to these these little documentaries, uh, certainly wouldn't be to a full scale production. What they'd probably do is build a whole house uh, uh, on a lot and, you know, film exteriors in the town and green, green screen. And, but I, I can't see them doing interiors in that house. It's a little too cramped for all the equipment that would be used. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, I uh, was commissioned to do a screenplay by Donald Woods five years ago. And we entered into a business relationship of it, and they had a copyrighted an agreement we both signed. So if anybody goes knocking on his door, and remember now, last year, last two years, he won the trademark to Lizzie Borden, mm-hmm. right? So, which the city of Fall River should have done long ago. It would have probably wouldn't be in the financial straits there and now, but I digress. So if anybody goes knocking at his door... He's got first. You um, know, I got to check with him first before before they make any story about Lizzie Borden.
2: Well, as long as if there's a, if there's a part for any paranormal investigators who aggravate the ghosts, yeah, then I have to be cast in that role. All right, that's my that's my job.
0: You and Chris Moon and Lisa Nowicki.
2: Well, I don't I don't think that they uh, they get as aggravated with them uh, as they do with me. Probably because they are a little bit more respectful toward Andrew than I am. So oh, really. Hey, that's the way it goes. Well, thank you Fay for for joining us and for enlightening us on who Lizzie Borden was as a person. Hopefully paranormal investigators that are oh, going yeah, to Oh yeah, learn- I'm I'm
0: looking forward to that cuz I think we're going to learn a lot.
2: I I I hope that they take this information going forward and and we always have a great time talking to you and and are you coming down? Are you going to be
0: Well, I was there just uh what about 6 weeks ago and then I was there 2 months ago. And I'll give you a buzz next time I'm in town.
2: Excellent, sounds great. Yeah. And, and somebody in the chat room wants to know, you know, are you, you going to have the definitive Lizzie Borden book coming out yourself?
0: Oh, I've written three books. I have three finished manuscripts, none of which I've ever had published because every time I learn something new, and my my theory and my point of view changes. You know, maybe I'll wait until after Parallel Lives is out and then uh, finish one. My son just. Keep saying, just write the book. I'm just write
2: the book. Oh, <laughs> well, I got I got a publisher for you that would be salivating for the chance. So yeah,
0: okay, all right.
2: Well, a well, always a pleasure. And same here. And we thank you for all your information and for all that you've done in helping us learn about Lizzie Borden over the years. Thank you. All right, have a good night. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye bye. Bye. That is Faye Musselman. You can check out her blog, Tattered Fabric. Just go to famous.wordpress.com, and it's p h a y e m u s s dot Wordpress.com. And you can go to SpookySouthCoast.com. It'll be linked up there as well. And uh, we want to thank Reverend, Reverend Clarissa Vasquez for coming in. And it's it's an interesting topic, and it's hard to kind of get word and edgewise with all this information coming out. But we thank you for coming and, and It is a out. little
5: difficult, and I, and I actually had questions for Faye. Um, we just got a little distracted with callers. So uh, maybe the next time she's on, I can
2: Absolutely. call in and
5: fire those at her.
2: And the door is always open. Well, it's locked. It's not actually open, but we can open it for you. So, you know, the next time you decide to drive for 40 straight hours,
5: we're here. Yeah, the, the next time I'm in town, which will hopefully be soon. Uh, I, it looks like this is the first of many trips out this direction.
2: Definitely, so we'll, definitely worth the trip, and we'll make sure that you actually get inside Lizzie Borden's house next time, yeah. so you can experience it, and then you'll you'll know exactly what we're talking about when we say it is. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, in Mecca. I'll
5: let Balzano know a little farther in advance that I'm coming instead of <laughs> calling him after I'm already here. That's make, uh,
2: officially make, known as content director Balzano.
3: I was going to say, make it more towards the winter time when the place is shut down, so you'll have the place more to yourself.
2: Ah, and then you, good can, point. Then you can crash. there. All right, well, that'll do it for this week's show. Next week, we're going to talk to Janice Tremere, who is actually an authority on the ghosts uh, along Route 66. So for anybody that remembers that old highway, and if you've seen the movie Cars, they talk a lot about it. But, you know, it was the main drag through that portion of America for many years before the uh, interstates all came in. And there's a lot of ghosts associated, a lot of paranormal happenings on Route 66. And we're going to talk about that next week with Janice Tremere. And if you want to find out more about the show at any time during the week, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, soon to be the new SpookySouthCoast.com. But for now, we'll at least keep you updated with what's going on. You can download all the previous episodes and stream the video podcast. I think we're actually going to have a video podcast for this episode, too, so you'll be able to get that as well. So until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular.